Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Talking Natural Capital, the podcast from Galbraith and a very happy new year to all our listeners as we enter 2022. We've got an exciting episode for you today, but before that, I better introduce my panel. As always, Eleanor Harris. Eleanor, happy new year to yourself. Happy new year. Happy new year, Matt and Emily and all our listeners. Yep, well, you've just name dropped her there, so I better get her involved. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry. Uh, yep, yeah, and a very warm welcome to Emily Stone, who is the Climate and Sustainability Business Development Manager at Edinburgh Science. Emily, a happy new year to yourself, and first off, I hope I got your title right there. <laughs> happy new year to you as well, Matt. Yeah, it's certainly a long one, isn't it? It's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> but hi, I'm Emily. We will talk with Emily, obviously, throughout the podcast. Um, it's really good to have her on. She's our first external guest that we've had on, so... A little before we get Emily on. Um, Elner, can we have a little look back at 2021 and in 2022, please? Yes, I thought um, since it's our first podcast of the year, it would be um, good to look back and look forward and um, introduce, this is very much by way of introducing some of the themes that I'm hoping to talk about with Emily in a moment. I've written down four headings here, um, policy, supply chains, climate change and global response. So policy, first of all, always very important. In 2021, we saw the passing of the UK Environment Act um, with protection for iconic species and um, provisions about deforestation in supply chains, water pollution. Um, There's various commentators are skeptical of its effectiveness, but there's also general agreement this is gonna be uh, really important. It's gonna affect lots of things. And in 22 coming up, this is that was looking back, looking forward, we're going to get the first test of it, what it's going to actually mean when a consultation on targets is going to be launched shortly. So that's something to look out for. We've also got the launch of environmental land management um, in England. So new changes to subsidies, which is all part of that Environment Act spectrum. And then we should see specific proposals on um, government support coming forward in Scotland as well. Um, so we're going to see a lot more detail about how land is going to be managed from an environmental point of view. We've also got associated with that policy and that Environment Act, the sort of natural capital mechanisms, um, things like peatland code really taking off last year. And in the coming year, we're going to likely see new carbon codes and also um, biodiversity net gain. So biodiversity as well as carbon being um, having mechanisms to support under policy. Supply chains was my next one, um, and COVID's been um, been really brought supply chains to the fore. We've got people buying more British food in supermarkets. Uh, we've had various supply chain crises, as everyone wants the same thing at once. And that, I'm sure we're going to see more of that sort of thing in 2022, hopefully not crises, but the, that shift of food from, from hospitality and people eating out and people eating... Um, in institutions to uh, retail and buying their own food and cooking it at home. That's starting to look like that's going to go on for a long time. In the background, uh, the, much of this is to do with climate change, but we've seen the climate changing and we just had at the end of the year, we had Storm Arwen and big impacts on the forestry industry. Uh, just this week, um, there was a report from um, uh, Christian Aid talking about the global cost of climate events escalating um, billions of pounds of damage um, and more every year and we don't know what's going to happen obviously we can't look forward to 2022 we don't know what's going to happen but what we do know is that these um, big costly climate events are becoming more common and even 1.5 degrees which is what we're all aiming for is going to be um, worse than that so we all need to be thinking about resilience 
And finally, just to touch on global response, of course, at the end of last year, we had COP26. And I've heard some people saying, well, uh, what's happened? You know, that kind of came and went, didn't it? What, what was COP26? Well, actually, um, this year, I think we've got a COP27, um, the African COP, which should be um, keeping the momentum going. Those global frameworks are going to start to filter down um, through the economy and, and change all kinds of things. And, and that's what we can hopefully talk a bit more about. Um, in the next half hour so obviously touched on COP26 there is a general feeling that it's just come and gone does that kind of feel like it has generally you know that's kind of the consensus as it has happened and you know since Christmas and and obviously COVID is still very rife like it's kind of almost been forgotten about again I I think that that that's almost happened with every every big COP and never more so than when it's in when you're in the place I mean it literally did come and go from Glasgow from Scotland and um so yes, it's gone, but the process hasn't stopped at all. It's it's very much an ongoing. This is the 26th, of course, and um, there there will be more. So um, yeah, that event is finished, and maybe you know there's a huge build up and, and a lot of energy went into it, and everyone's recovering slightly. But um, the the decisions that were made there and the um, the mechanisms that were moved forward um, are not going to go away, and will certainly um, even if it hasn't got the COP26 name on it. The things that happen there will will be affecting um, a huge range of you know, global activity. And this is probably the best time to introduce our guest properly, Emily Stone, obviously from Edinburgh Science. We introduced you just at the start there. But can I just ask you a little bit, but first off, about Eleanor saying there about COP twenty six and what what was some of the work that you guys did, were did, and what's your thoughts on on COP twenty six since it's now come and gone? We've actually started doing um, a kind of more business um, engagement to do with the uh, climate emergency and we've been trying to kind of use our influence I suppose we've got a large number of partners um, of which Galbraith are one and I'll talk a bit more about the exact um, the exact work that we're doing in this sector um, in a bit I suppose but yeah just to um, touch on the COP26 comments there we ourselves held a number of roundtable meetings um, with our supporters and um, various other network members um, at COP26. So we've sort of, one of many organisations just trying to make the most of the sort of international delegation that we're hovering about in Glasgow, trying to kind of grab, you know, contacts of contacts, pull them into our meetings and that kind of thing. So we held two meetings actually. one was around Scotland's green economic um, transformation and kind of being a global leader um, on the sort of stage of um, decarbonisation. Um, and I think it was at sort of events like this, really, you got a lot of people coming together. You got a lot of contact being made because of this sort of frenzy that people had to put on events to make the most of um, numbers of people being in Glasgow. Um, yeah, I think really the real impact of COP is seen not so much in the negotiations that took place in the actual um, political kind of negotiating room, but um, around the fringes. Um, So all these sort of events, all of these people who met each other um, due to attending an event at COP26, whether it was online or in person, you know, they might not have met um, if it hadn't have been for that conference, if it hadn't have been for the kind of hype that surrounded it. And I think most people I spoke to in the few weeks after COP certainly did feel a bit exhausted, a bit burnt out, in need of a rest, um, a bit like they'd been hit by a massive, you know, tidal wave, which um, is probably fair to say. But yeah, certainly the um, the legacy of COP, I think, lives on in that it kind of accelerated the sort of innovations that were going on um, in the in the business community. I've been thinking a lot, I think COP helped prompt this in, in my head, and I'm sure lots of other heads as well, um, that um, about the kind of different levels of 
activity in the world on this and, and how um, COP is a kind of forum for bringing those together and starting to oil the wheels of decarbonisation. We all want to do it, but how do you do it? And you've got, um, you've got nations which, who are the, kind of in, the key players in, in COP, it's the nations of the world getting together, but then you've got big corporates, big investors, banks, those great big financial stakeholders. Those people are invested in by shareholders and people with pension funds and you know, might be ordinary people like you and me, you've got a pension fund who are all starting to lobby for climate action. But then in turn, those big corporate funders are, um, are providing the investment and the support for, um, for the big companies that are doing things, whether that's construction companies or, or food companies or um, all of um, the things that go on in the world. And then in turn, those are the companies who coming down to um, down to the rural economy, they're the ones who are demanding things from the land, whether that's food or materials or energy. Um, they're looking to um, many of the people that we work with to provide what they need, and they're starting to look at the carbon emissions of that. And then you get back down to the people that live in the uh, live in Scotland or in England or um, in in the places where these things are produced, who are looking at what's going on and saying we want lower carbon things. And and how are you? Um, how you join all those dots up and how you get all these people talking to each other, um, I think is really very much what, um, what COP is aiming to facilitate. But then all of um, us at Galbraith and, and your Edinburgh Science are trying to do the same. We're all trying to get everyone on the same page and, and um, working together in this kind of great global shared project. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's such a sort of system scale project to decarbonize the world, you know, and it, everything's kind of interlinked. It's really impossible. I sort of had a strange analogy earlier. I was sort of, it's, it's quite hard to see your impact, basically. You know, I, I remember sort of working in a cafe and you pick up someone's plate off of a table, you wash the plate and then you dry the plate and you put it away. And that's, you know, it's quite easy to see the sort of the work that you've done. Whereas nowadays you you might talk to somebody, you might influence them to reduce their emissions. That's certainly something we're trying to do through our net zero toolkit, which I'll hopefully come on to talk about in just a bit. Um, but there's sort of there's not really a clear pathway to kind of identify the sort of impact you've had as an individual. And I think that's because we, we don't, you know, OK, I don't want to say we don't have impact as individual people, because that that would probably be wrong. Some people do have a very, um, very strong impact. But I think the most powerful impact that we can have is together. And that's um, kind of why we've started really doing these roundtable um, meetings um, to kind of get people in the room who wouldn't normally be in the room. Um, so just to sort of give you a give you a kind of reference point of um, the, the meetings that I'm talking about. So back in 2019, um, we started the Climate Opportunity Ideas Factory. Um, so that's just part of Edinburgh Sciences business to business um, climate work stream. That's just kind of one arm of it. And we're, we're very thankful, obviously, to have Galbraith as one of our um, funding partners for that. Um, so back in 2019, it was actually Christiana Figueres, who is the Costa Rican diplomat, who um, she was instrumental in pushing through the Paris Climate Agreement, actually. Um, we were lucky enough to have her come to the Edinburgh Science Festival um, and we awarded her the Edinburgh Medal, which we give to someone who's made um, a really, really strong contribution to science um, in a particular year. So we held a round table with her. Um, the opportunity of having her kind of there, you know, captive with us at the Science Festival was just too good to miss. So we got um, one of our board members, Martin Valenti, to have um, every sort of CEO that he knew um, and put them in the room with her. And she actually challenged all of the delegates to um, to collaborate 
to not, you know, not to bicker with each other if they had slightly differing views. You know, you have people from, for example, the airport from energy companies next to, you know, WWF and other charities. And um, they'd all be sat around the table and they were encouraged to sort of identify opportunities in the face of the climate emergency, not to see it as a threat, but to see it as, I think she said, the biggest opportunity for innovation um, and decarbonisation that we've ever, ever had. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of really sort of ties into Edinburgh Science's ethos of having um, everybody together um, in the same room, kind of collaborating and trying to find uh, solutions to this, um, this this big kind of problem, you know, that's quite difficult to pick apart. Yeah, well, I think that leads us on nicely to obviously your role within the, the organisation, Emily. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what you do, um, first off, for Edinburgh Science? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I joined Edinburgh Science. It was um, just during the summer, actually. So Edinburgh Science, as a kind of science communication organisation, really kind of sees that it has the opportunity to do um, a lot more in the face of the climate emergency. Also, sort of what we're trying to do um, across the sort of broader um, Edinburgh Science Festival and learning um, is embed science communication about the climate emergency um, into kind of everything we do. So just to talk a little bit more about Edinburgh Science, I guess, obviously I mentioned we've got the Edinburgh Science Festival, which runs every Easter. Um, We've got our kind of new climate arm of work and we also run a whole learning kind of suite of activities so that is um, kind of two main things one called generation science which is a touring scientific workshop um, that goes to primary schools and that used to be kind of people going and delivering those workshops um, but now we kind of due to covid we send a like a box of tricks if you like around and some kind of video tutorials which the teachers can um, then do with the pupils um, hopefully resuming sending people around because um, these people are sort of experts in science communication you know and they're, they're sort of hired to be incredibly fun and just give the kids a bit of a change of scenery from their normal um, school day situation and um, we also have careers hive which shows young people and um, puts them in touch with professionals who are in um you know professional um, science technology engineering careers um, and hopefully gives them some inspiration as to what they might like to do in the future um obviously off the back of one of the skills for just transition meetings that we had we're um trying to get more sustainability professionals in the room as well because ultimately you know green jobs are the jobs of the future we also have a kind of international arm of work which is more kind of commercial so we deliver um, science festivals abroad and in the um, in the Middle East, so we do the Abu Dhabi Science Festival most years, and we're working kind of Dubai Expo um, in 2021, last year now, as it is now 2022. But yeah, so to talk about the kind of the climate work um, that we've been taking forward, I mentioned about the Climate Opportunity Ideas Factory sparked by Cristiano Figueres. Um, so we are essentially running these kind of roundtables. They're they're like big kind of plenary forums almost for um, experts who are kind of willing to get together and collaborate. Um, So from some of these meetings, we have kind of been able to take forward um, ideas. That was kind of the original intention of holding these meetings was to take forward tangible ideas, which could then be kind of developed into projects that either we as Edinburgh Science could run um, or, you know, the meetings might inspire people to work in their own groups um, to take forward ideas and there's certainly a number of things um which have been happening which have actually come out of these meetings um to then be delivered one of the earlier meetings was um on green finance and how to get kind of businesses um smaller businesses engaged um with climate emergency so 
off the basis of that meeting, created um, a toolkit for businesses called mm. the Net Zero mm. Toolkit. Um, so that's just a simple eight-step toolkit designed um, to talk SMEs, you know, through the process of carbon management, um, as well as kind of giving them a bank of resources um, with each step of the toolkit to make to to help them basically guide them through the journey of lowering mm. their carbon emissions. We've been um, very much supporting that and really keen to see that going forward. Um, and um, I think I'm writing, thinking it's it's promoting the idea of. Um, of science-based net zero targets, is that right? Um, and that's been something I've been doing a huge amount of thinking about is um, everyone wants to decarbonize. Of course, every business wants to claim it's decarbonizing. And of course, there's a lot of temptation to um, to, to, to use it just as a kind of PR tool. And um, the, the whole science-based targets initiative has been developed to, to really ground um, businesses' claims of um, of decarbonisation and net zero in independent um, and credible and practical climate science. I'd be interested to hear a bit more about you know, for, you know, what that what that means and how um, how the net zero toolkit um, aligns with that and helps businesses to understand that. Of course, target setting is something that's incredibly important for businesses um, to do. Step six of the Net Zero Toolkit is um, based exclusively um, around target setting and we've kind of modelled, um, if you like, the prompts within step six um, off of the science-based targets initiative. Um, so each of the steps I mentioned it's backed up by um, resources, so obviously science-based targets is um, the kind of the key resource um, that we would refer people to. Um, there are pages and pages on the science-based targets website that you can um, read, but one of our um, our content partners, I suppose, um, Consultancy Can Pay Your Footprint, have sort of distilled um, the science-based targets into a more digestible um, guide so that's super handy as well and it's a lot easier for kind of time-strapped SMEs to um, just skim through rather than read through the whole um, science-based targets um, documentation but yeah obviously you've got this whole kind of issue and I think we've talked about it before Eleanor haven't we where you you need to establish what your baseline is to find out what you're net zeroing and that's so so important from a um, you know, from a business perspective, um, I have I've kind of come across a few people in the business community who are sort of of the opinion, well, you know, we don't know what our emissions are, but as long as we're doing something, then surely that's good. And and I guess it is in a way. You know, it is if you're you know your heating is coming from gas, but you install a lower carbon heating system, then ultimately, no doubt, you've saved some carbon, and that's that's fantastic. But I think increasingly with um, you know, potential customers and buyers, depending on your type of business, looking at your carbon credentials, it doesn't make any sort of business sense to not be, you know, recording what your baseline is, recording what carbon reductions you've made. It's almost like, I don't know, saying that, you know, you've got money coming in, but you're not sure how much or something along those lines, because we, we do live in a really heavily kind of metric based society. And obviously, carbon's a lot harder to keep track of than money. You know, it doesn't clearly come in and out of a you know bank account somewhere on the computer. It, it's just sort of there in the air. But um, yeah, I think the one thing about setting targets and um, establishing your baseline um, is that it is, yeah, it's important um, it's, imp it's important to kind of keep track of um, so that you can then, yeah, show other people um, in a way. And I don't mean like a lot of other people get confused saying, well, isn't that greenwashing? But I think if you can 
come up with you know honest disclosure about what your carbon emissions are and about what you would like them to be with the help of using science-based targets initiative um, to set those targets then that's you know that's probably all the integrity you can give um, as a company. Yeah, it's almost creating magic isn't it that you, you, you yeah. get growth and then you get more growth and you invest and it gets better and, <laughs> and we're trying to reapply that back to to nature and stop just kind of um, to, to stop pillaging it and start reinvesting in it and it's a, yeah um, I think the it's broadening our whole idea of what economics means um, maybe getting back to that the original meaning of the word which is about running your household well and and mm. we're almost trying to run our global household um, well there's you know a, a conservation element as well isn't there about part of the net zero toolkit we recommend to businesses the, the kind of first and foremost thing we recommend is to reduce their carbon emissions across um, you know a number of steps whether that's operational um, that might be you know your building heating that might be your vehicle use um, that might be your scope three emissions those of which you were able to measure and quantify of course like your flights for example freight shipping of goods tell us about scope one two and three because um, i'm sure there are people yeah. listening who uh, to whom this is new terminology and it's it's really core part of this whole carbon measuring thing Absolutely, yeah. So scope one is kind of emissions you generate directly on site. For a lot of people, actually, that only really applies to heating because it's kind of gas that you burn on site if you're, you know, if you're a process plant and you're using kind of fuels to fuel whatever the work is that you're doing, then that is considered a scope one emission. Scope two tends to be things that you sort of buy with the direct, you know, consuming but not on site. So electricity, for example, you're buying electricity, which has been created by burning elsewhere it's all a bit confusing really but i think a scope two is basically electricity and yeah yeah examples but they do they're both a bit obscure yeah but for yeah. most of us it's probably electricity scope three scope three is certainly the one where it gets a bit confusing because scope three is basically anything and everything else and it's you know so that could be for example for us as the edinburgh science festival just to use an example that's close to me we um procure a lot of kind of funny materials for showcasing so that could be i don't know a giant blow up octopus tentacle or a 3d <laughs> large scale five foot model of the inside of an ear um so those things obviously have a carbon footprint associated with um the production the freight the shipping um everything along those lines so that's something you know you you just have to keep track of all of that as much as you physically possibly can but then of course you've got more grey areas um, with your scope three emissions of you know which emissions are actually attributable to us as an organisation and which emissions are attributable to you know a different organisation. For example, if we use say we use venues um, for some of our science festival events, so say we use the National Museum Scotland for two weeks, it's a cold April, they're heating the building you know, is that our emission? Do we account for that because that was while we were using the building or is that something that National Museum Scotland are going to account for in their emissions? Is it going to get double reported somewhere along the way? So there's, you know, lots of grey areas, particularly with scope three. But I would say any emission that you deem to be even slightly within your control, you know, if you can go up to the people at the venue and say, oh, can we actually just not have the heating on for this? Or, you know, if you will continue to use you if you lower your carbon of your heating supply within five years or something along those lines yeah if, if you feel like you might have slight control over it then absolutely like take the control over it um because it's yeah. again i guess it comes to that thing of um carbon management kind of being a collaborative effort you know you can't individually kind of control everything 
even though you might want to, um, you know, you've kind of got to work with your suppliers, your partners, other stakeholders um, to to kind of chip away at this whole decarbonisation beast. I want to, or to come back to that, hold that thought, because I think there's something to dig into a bit more, but um, just on scope three, it's, it's downstream as well as upstream, isn't it? So if I buy, yeah. if I buy a house, then my scope one and two emissions are the... Um, the fuel I use to heat to run that house to heat it and light it but my scope three emissions are the the energy used by the the people who built the house and I'm taking responsibility for that if it's built from um, concrete or if it's built from wood or what um, if it's materials have been transported a long way and but then the other way around if I'm a house builder and I've, I've built a house and I sell it to someone then if I've designed it to be very energy efficient then I will have low scope three emissions in their use of that house, whereas if I've uh, I've made it all drafty, and then then I my scope three responsibility is for those uh, all that fuel that's going to be needed to live in that house because it's um, because of the way it's been built. So if I'm producing something that needs transported a long way or is is energy intensive in its use, that's also scope three, isn't it? Yeah, precisely, precisely, and it's all part of I suppose. The collective effort, if you like, to reduce emissions kind of across the boards. Um, so it's almost like there's kind of, it's a dual-ended thing, you know, there's the person producing something has a responsibility for the emissions, but also the person buying the thing has the responsibility to make the decision, you know, whether it's actually something they want to buy, whether they want to purchase something which is going to have to be shipped a really long distance that's been kind of made really inefficiently. Um, so yeah, I guess a lot of decisions relating to scope three emissions have multiple stakeholders involved um and yeah the low carbon decision is most likely always going to be the best decision yeah people get um quite excited about this and this question of double counting and and even more so if we're starting um we're talking about carbon emissions but there's also carbon benefit and so you can do something that's a carbon benefit and you can say i've invested in this low carbon technology or i've um i've reduced these carbon emissions it's, it's very easy for a critic to come along and say, well, actually, you know, you, you've double counted because so-and-so is also taking that credit. And whether it's, um, whether it's national carbon emissions, should they be credited to the nation or to the companies within the nation that are doing it? Or um, we, a lot of this discussion in forestry and timber, because you're, you're growing the trees, sequestering the carbon, then the timber's used. Can the um, can the person who grew the trees take credit for the timber that's being stored in in the house that's built with the trees, or is that credit only for the person who buys the house? And we need some way of I feel we need some way of getting beyond that and saying you know if you're involved in it you can you can you get the credit or the blame if 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 you were yeah. part of the system that that produced the carbon emission, then you need to start tackling it. And if similarly if um, if you're part of the system that's benefited benefiting you need to take credit and maybe um, especially when maybe talk a bit about the whole net zero concept um, when we come to talk about net zero we we can't it is you know it's fraught with um, difficulty because it does kind of assume that you've got this um, this net idea that there's this precise amount of carbon and this precise yeah. amount of benefit and that in practice it doesn't tend to work like that does it yeah absolutely because I think you know, you're not, nobody's going to take every single company's um, emissions, you know, carbon emissions reports and kind of add it all together to make the total amount of carbon that the UK saved. You know, that's not, um, we don't have the 
almost like the mathematical genius for that and life is you know life's more complicated and messy um than being able to do that so um yeah i suppose what i'm saying is we can all sort of share the pat on the back for um reducing carbon in a certain area um and we, yeah you're, you're quite right we shouldn't get too hung up on this idea of you know laying a claim to a certain um, carbon reduction i think as long as the reductions are happening um then that's fantastic and that's something that we should we should all be shouting about you know because again um recognizing that you <laughs> keep coming back to it but recognizing that it's a kind of a collaborative effort yeah i think going back to uh, the starting point of looking forward to what's going to happen in 2022 certainly on my list that's that's a very big item is um and we're very much working in the space of um what's currently called offsetting but um with where people are using nature-based solutions to um to make claims about their carbon story or um, and then this overlaps with all the things that the land is already doing, like food production and, and carbon in the soil, that the soil is growing, something that we use. Um, forestry, again, is a carbon store, but it's also producing a low carbon material. And um, starting to understand you know, all these external players, um, companies that might be using the Net Zero Toolkit, and then um, coming to, um, to look at the land and to say, how can we use this to... Um, um, to, to make credible carbon claims and um, it's um, we know that there's uh, we're in the situation of everyone collaborating and, and complex solutions how do we um, work together to to make the things happen and and, and give um, give companies the reassurance that they are doing the right thing and that they're not greenwashing they are making a difference and Emily, it's been touched on already in the podcast about the ongoing relationship with uh, Galbraith and Edinburgh Science. So can you tell us just a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, so Edinburgh Science, we're really grateful to have Galbraith as one of our funding partners. The funding partnership, I think you guys have been funding us um, since 2021. Partnerships obviously enabled you to be around the table at all of our roundtable meetings, um, have some input into the climate um, and sustainability work that we're doing um, that I mentioned earlier. So with the Climate Opportunity Ideas Factory roundtables um, and with the Net Zero Toolkit as well. Um, when we launched the Net Zero Toolkit in June this year, 2021, it coincided exactly with the time when I first joined Edinburgh Science so it was a busy busy time um, but yeah so Galbraith did some prototype testing um, on the toolkit with us uh, which we're very very grateful for and um, helped kind of inform the strategy and the direction that we were going to take with the toolkit at the early stages um, helped kind of iron out any errors in user experience before we took that out to you know our wider networks yeah Eleanor perhaps you can um, say a bit about the, the kind of benefit of this that relationship uh, for Galbraith our relationship coincided with myself joining Galbraith and it was just uh, I think um, a couple of months before you came on board at Edinburgh Science and so I, um, I, I kind of arrived and this um, this collaboration was set up and it started off with you know we've got some um, um, some of your exhibitions and there was our logo on the exhibition and, and um, I think um, something people will have seen on the mound in Edinburgh and Portobello and then going to be able to go to the events and um, it was really the events where I started thinking yeah this is actually this is a really useful um, this is going to be really um, really useful for my role is was your networking role in, in bringing different sectors of the economy together and those different as we've talked about those collaborations the rural economy can seem um, quite isolated all the rest of the economy is somewhere else geographically and, and there's this very um, really very small um, 
and sometimes slightly insular part of the economy um, doing this really fundamental thing. So having Edinburgh Science as a kind of platform for um, for coming in and, 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 and talking to other people about that. And I've, I've been to some events and several of my colleagues have been along and um, you had an event on skills and that one of my colleagues went to and was able to talk about skills in the rural economy. Yes, yeah, certainly a lot of the skills of the future are going to be in, you know, whether it's land-based management, whether it's kind of woodland creation, forestry management, as well as, um, of course, your more traditional kind of agriculture and regenerative agriculture sectors as well. That's all going to grow. So ultimately, when you're talking about skills for a green future, you're not just talking about people fixing wind turbines. You know, there's there's this whole other kind of element to it, which we absolutely don't want to get forgotten. And I suppose particularly in our kind of outreach work to young people, we want to make sure we're including um jobs in the, the nature-based sector in you know in the conversation and um, to make them know that you know th this is a highly scientific job you can work in agriculture you can work in forestry as well it's not just you know it's not just working in a lab it's not just sitting at a computer engineering things all day you know there's there's loads to do mm -hmm. yeah I hope we can have a uh, come back and talk about skills in a future podcast because that's um there's there's such a need you know we need um we need people in the rural economy there's there's demand for um for, for talent and for, for people, uh, boots on the ground, literally, um, but also that people from different backgrounds and more diversity, um, people who maybe haven't had a um, come down the traditional rural economy path, but have come from um, science or engineering or, um, or I've come from the humanities, but all these other economies bringing new ideas, bringing that kind of research and development and fresh thinking to bear, because there's quite a lot of um, there's a lot of expectation on on the nature-based economy to deliver, and, um, and 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 it's it's such a you know it's a really attractive opportunity for for a lot of people. You get to be out in nature and um, really solving um, environmental problems out there in the countryside with plants that are growing and um, and and seeing the results of your work, seeing the cleaner water and the um, the restored woodlands. Um, yeah perhaps a lot more um yeah it's very tangible yeah absolutely and we didn't even get so far as to talk about you know rewilding reforestation um carbon sequestration all of those opportunities mm. as well that are kind of alive in the um in the nature-based sector but um yeah, <laughs> perhaps that's something else to come back to future. <laughs> i think you've passed the test to know that you'll be back so um <laughs> you're, you're definitely <laughs> going to be a future po uh, podcast guest again and um, just as we wind down obviously emily it, it does promise to be an exciting 2022 for edinburgh science and of course with the highly popular science events um, in Eastern throughout the summer as well and um, just be looking forward to them and how can people find out more about them? If you just get in touch with myself it's just emily.stone at scifest.co.uk I think perhaps if we yeah pop this out in social media posts if you can include any any words with it maybe just um, put my email address on there as well that's fine to go out to whoever and if you're keen to hear more about the the net zero toolkit take a look see if it could help you know your your business it's just netzerotoolkit.org and if you type in net zero toolkit all one word into google it'll be the first one that comes up on your search well that just about wraps things up for today's show emily it's been a pleasure speaking to you today also look forward to having you back on in the future so thank you very much likewise matt yeah thank you so much for having me and thank you eleanor too that was a great conversation one to continue definitely on the future occasion uh, great to see you and see you again soon i hope absolutely i look forward to it and eleanor always it's a, a pleasure to speak to you and uh, we'll be back on next time for another another episode yeah, we'll see you. 
And just before we begin, obviously as a reminder, you can catch all our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Anchor. I believe that they are the perfect listening for when you're driving to and from the office or even if you're just taking a lunch break. We're across social media, of course, so please check us out. And Emily as well, just Edinburgh Sciences across social media as well. Yeah, so we're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Um, yeah, just Edinburgh Science. Perfect, excellent. And, and get in touch as well if you have any thoughts or questions for Elner for future podcasts. Until then, take care and we'll see you down the road.